You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. I, I'm like a classy guy, so I got a TV right in front of my treadmill. And I went on YouTube and I looked up The Running Public and there isn't one. I no. know. So I don't, you have this nice shoe wall, but does anyone get to see it? Me. Is there a place to watch it? Yeah, my OnlyFans gets it. Okay, cool. Uh, a, lot of skin, a lot of skin on the OnlyFans. Even if it's just his head, it's still yeah. a lot of skin. Yeah, there's a, whole, there's a whole audience for just this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a niche. VJ, isn't it nice, isn't it nice of uh, Bracken to join us on time for this interview? I am honored, truly. Bracken looks confused. Bracken, do you remember the last time, the only time you forgot about an episode was when we, <laughs> yeah. when we interviewed me? That's right. Matt Kempson was in town and I was playing tennis with him at the park. <laughs> like what? One time in my life have I ever been able to say I was at the park playing tennis. And it was that moment. I've been playing pickleball lately. And that, that's pretty fun. Pickleball is the truth. Where are you playing pickleball at? Well, recently I was just playing it um, at my friend's house. Um, every time I go to California, we start playing. But then I found out we have a court in our neighborhood. So we started playing there. That court sucks. But there's this place a few miles down the road called the Northside Social. And it has like eight or 12 pickleball courts. And it facilitates like training sessions and camps and stuff. So I think I'm going to get into that. I might. Are you good? Do you, do you have a natural touch for it? I actually, um, I think I might be kind of good. Because I've played with people that have played for like years, and I'm able to keep up decently and win some games. I mean, I've only played doubles. I can't, uh, maybe I was been, I've been carried the whole time, but it's been good so far. You never know. Well, I know two pro pickleball players, if you ever want to make the leap. Is, is being a pro okay. pickleball player like being a pro Spartan athlete? Yeah. Where oh, yeah. They, where they make no money, but they get like free T-shirts. No, there's 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 cash tournament. It's probably like winning Savage Race, <laughs> minus the X. Yeah, dude. They just they should give like big old like wooden paddles or something like that. Or giant pickles. Like that. A big wood carved pickle. Um, I'm supposed to. My house is a mess right now because I'm getting ready to move, but. Uh, I put all my stuff on Facebook Marketplace, and somebody's supposedly supposed to come pick up my patio furniture potentially during this recording. So if I just disappear, VJ, it's not because I'm bored. I'm probably very interested, but I got cash money to make, brother. That's fair. That's fair. Right after this, I'm gonna go. I might go buy a bicycle off of Facebook Marketplace. What kind of bicycle? So, so I currently ride a uh, specialized stump jumper, full suspension. It's nice, but I grew up. Uh, riding cross country, hardtail, and uh, my problem is, I'm, I'm a decent mountain bike rider. So whenever there's like 20 foot doubles over there, I tend to go that way because I'm, my bike is capable of it. So I'm trying to get something that focuses a little more on training and less on fun, mm-hmm. so that when I'm in lycra, I'll skip the big jumps and I'll go straight for, um, you know, the training side. Go up the hill, not down the jumps. So I'm going to go get a, uh, someone's selling a carbon stump jumper, the hardtail version for like 800 bucks. 
and like brand new, they're like three or four grand. So like, I can't pass it up. No, you can't. What's a stump jumper exactly? Is this slang that I don't know about? It's, no, it's a model from Specialized. Oh, okay. It's it's the Specialized Stump Jumper. It's a name. They also have a rock hopper, if that's more your thing, like rocks versus wood. I don't know. Do you have a Do you have a road but bike as well? You. I do. Is it? It's not a great one, but it's good. I, I have a few times. Road is really boring for me, though. I much prefer getting on the trails and staying in the mountains. So some people can, you know, hop on the road bike and sit there for three hours, and I just I find it so dull. I'm the exact opposite. Really? I can only run trail, but I really like biking just a paved bike path. Probably because I don't have the I don't have the technical acumen to use my engine on a trail. All I can do is hurt myself. Road biking's like the equivalent of the treadmill, I feel like when I'm out on it. But I still do it because it's a means to an end. But I, I can't say I super enjoy it. So I'm with VJ, I think, on that one. Yeah, I've uh I have some rollers that I'll hop on from time to time, go full Kevin Gelati with it. And then I get off and like throw knives and stuff just to make sure that my skills are sharp. Um, But yeah, yeah. Road bike's not for me. I keep it in case I ever want to sign up for another triathlon. That's why I have the road bike. It's it's in case I get that itch. Mm. So is that an eventual thing for you? Maybe I'm such a terrible swimmer. Like you ever seen a deer like cross a river in Africa? That's what I look like in the water. But when I get out of the water, I'm really, really good. Like I grew up on bicycles. So, I ride really well, and I'm a pretty decent runner. So those things are really strong, but my swimming is just so bad. I think I had a traumatic experience when I was a kid. Um, so now I like I panic whenever my face is under the water for more than five seconds. So One second. Yeah. Apparently, I'm the only responsible okay. one here. Well, you might disappear for patio furniture. Every time VJ's on, it's a gong show, Just be, but not his fault. It's other people's fault. Mirror just fell down the steps. Uh, no big deal. Kids are kind of like, nice. yeah, yeah. She's three. She's made out of rubber, gelatin and rubber. Yeah, she'll be fine. Yeah, I thought the bones are yeah, still bendy. Her, her skull point, isn't right? even fully formed yet. No. Just kidding. No, it she, definitely is at three. <laughs> she's basically a weeble wobble. <laughs> um, VJ, what, uh, what have you been doing lately? Like, aside from the race scene, we got like, so we talked to you a while back and we kind of got your backstory and how you got to where you are today. And now we let, Greg and I are super pumped to actually dissect like a few aspects of your life and training. So like we can drop some knowledge on the listeners and I think you have a lot of it. Um, but I just want to know outside of racing and all that, which we're going to get to, like, what have you been up to these days? Like what's life like in VJ's world? Well, I, last time we spoke, I'd already moved to Colorado, but I was pretty new. Mm-hmm. It was like a month in yep. or something like that. Uh, so now I've been here for almost 10 months now. So it's been pretty cool. I'm kind of building a life here, meeting new people, that sort of thing. But it's kind of a rough time to move because it was in the middle of COVID. So everywhere you went, people were still like really masked up. So when you look at someone, usually you look at their face and you're like, I can tell if they want to be friendly with me or not versus with a mask, you might just be forcing yourself on somebody that doesn't want it. So uh, meeting people is a little rough when I first got out here, other than all the people I already knew, which was fine, I guess, but things are opening back up. So I'm able to make new relationships and that sort of thing, which is good. Are you a social person? Like, do you feed off that? Um, I like it, but I don't necessarily need it. Like some people like really need to be around people all the time. I don't mind being by myself. Like I'll spend days at a time where I only talk to a couple people, but then some days, you know, I'm hanging out with people every day. So I'm kind of a pretty middle of the road guy when it comes to that. But um, yeah, it's been 
just getting used to everything, learning my surroundings, finding the training grounds that I like, trying to stay consistent with training. That's always been my problem. Like I'll train really hard for a couple of months and then I'll like, you know, go play, go, go learn that pickleball is a sport and I'll just only do that for a long time. Maybe pickleball will take you out of Spartan racing and we'll all be better off for it. Um, you know, if they paid more, I'd think about it. And but by the way things are looking, that might be the case. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens there. Um, but I don't know. Things have been pretty pretty normal for me out here. I've been putting a lot of work in uh, building the, the gym and the training facility here, and that's pretty much wrapped up. Uh, starting to bring in clients, which is really cool. Uh yeah, everything's pretty much the same, except everything's just progressed a lot from the last time we spoke. Okay. I did a version of your life, right? Move out to Colorado, go all in on training. And I struggled to transition. I shouldn't say a version of your life, but of your training progression, trying to get up to the best possible training place in the U.S. probably and get the altitude acclimation, become a better endurance athlete, a better mountain runner. I really struggled with altitude acclimation. I was out there two and a half, almost three years, and I never really felt like I fully adapted. What, where are you at in your process and how are you feeling? I'd say the aerobic side of things came along rather quickly. Okay. Um, even the first few months, like three months in, I felt like I had kind of matched what I had historically been down at sea level when I was living in SoCal. So it was good there. All my long runs, easy runs, that sort of thing. The paces were good. The heart rate was good. I wasn't getting too taxed, anything like that. Um, and I spoke to a couple of people about like where your heart rate range should be relative to sea level because I haven't done any metabolic testing at this altitude. Mm. So I made some adjustments like two to three beats lower is what a lot of people said. Um, so I, I played around with that and see where I felt good. But aerobically, low intensity, things are good. Things are really good here. Um, but the intensity thing has been really difficult. And I would, I stayed low intensity through my first six months here. I barely did any, um, now starting to add a little more. I'm still pretty much only one day a week of real quality work. The rest of it is, um, either strength training, skill-based stuff, and then, you know, time on your feet type of stuff. And I don't, I honestly don't know how it's going to be or or how long it's going to take to really get to that place where you're hitting those times that you were hitting previously at sea level. Um, I still can't do that. You know, um, when I go for a workout, if I'm doing like threshold work, when I would historically come down to that, you know, 540 to 530 range comfortably, now that's like six to 610. With the same, with the same mental exertion or same physical feel. Yeah. And I don't know when that's going to change. Today was the first day that I felt better, hmm. actually. Like right before I, I talked to you guys, I was listening to your previous podcast that you released on the treadmill during one of my workouts. And we did some threshold intervals, not long, just short ones, but they weren't meant to be super fast. But my heart rate didn't climb up the way that I expected. Usually uh, in these workouts, I choose to go off heart rate or I choose to go off pace. Today was pace. I just put it at 10 miles an hour and sit on it. And the heart rate didn't climb up the way that I expected. Normally it does. Normally it would have just like gone up, been near 180 and I would have just had to survive it. But today it was actually floating in like a 169 to 172 range, which is actually really good for me. It's a good place to be very sustainable. 
That's exciting. And I, I don't know if, the, yeah, I don't know if that's like a, 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 just a really great day and everything was right or if it's a turning point, but I'm, I'm hoping it's a turning point and I start hitting some faster paces um, coming up because the speed's still there. Every time I travel for a race down to sea level, I can still run fast. It's just up here. It's, it's kind of like mentally fatiguing to not be able to run those fast paces that you you're used to hitting. Uh, it's not like a confidence booster by any means. You just have to trust the process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's weird though. It's super It doesn't weird. induce confidence. It, not at all. And it was really scary going into the first races of the year, um, like Jacksonville where, where, you know, speed and being able to hit that top end speed, but make it stick for, you know, 25 minutes was going to be, you know, key. So not ha- having any good speed sessions leading into it was a little unsettling but it worked out but what i found and what i think is like at least for me running fitness like specifically running like 5k 10k fitness is not anything near ocr fitness Mm -mm. it's not the same it does not translate and time and time again we've had guys step into the sport with super fast 5k times i think we had like two or three guys that went to jacksonville break 15 in the 5k and then they came out and what happened where were they you know they weren't even threatening at the front of the race at any point so um it's been a a learning thing so right after jacksonville i came back i'm like i'm gonna test myself i signed up for this little like uh what's the holiday in march saint patrick's day it was saint patrick's day 5k i'm gonna go out just gonna see what happens i don't really have any plans and uh i went out like it was a normal 5k at sea level you know came through the mile at like you know 510 or something and it was a suffer fresh from there on like i think i ran a 1635 or a 1640 or something at the mm-hmm. end and i was like dude i just won a u.s national series race and i can't even go sub 1630 in a 5k <laughs> which was really strange and i was like questioning myself like like, am I just good at like flipping tires? Is that like my one thing that redeems me everywhere? I don't know, but um, clearly not. I mean, you would have run yeah. what four twenty a few months prior at sea level. Yeah, in November, I think it was like. So, so you know it's there, but yeah, when you can't access it, it's bizarre. To speak to that, on my on my behalf, I altitude trained for three months in between semesters in college twice, and I lived at like eighty five hundred feet. But occasionally we would go down to Denver or the front range, which is roughly 5,000. So we're dropping like three and a half thousand feet. And I remember doing a mile repeat workout. One of the only workouts I did that summer and I ran like five twenties. Normally we'd be running four fifties back at sea level in college for mile repeat workouts on the grass. We ran five twenties for that repeat workout. And then that weekend we went down to get tattoos at Rockstar Tattoo in Boulder. And we said, let's make our long run out of this and let's tempo it. And we ran eight of those miles at 520 pace four days later, but we were dropped. We dropped 3,500 feet. And I would say perceived effort might've been less and we matched it. And so even going from 85 to 5,000, we might've went to 4,500 for that one. Huge difference. So like, it's still there. You know that it's still there. I experienced it that day and I was like, oh, who cares what happens when I'm at elevation? Because when I go down, I'm still the boss. So I've experienced. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I never expected there to be a big difference between 7,500 feet and 5,000 feet. And 
I got invited up to Boulder to go run with Johnny for a day, like a flat run near Boulder Reservoir through those roads mm-hmm. over there. And that difference was crazy. I, I expected it to feel the same. I didn't really know what altitude we were at. I'm out there running and we're, we're at like a 620 or 630 and my heart rate's like 130. I'm like, this doesn't make, I'm, I'm having a great day today. And I checked the altitude and it was down, you know, 2,500 feet from where I normally am. So it was interesting to learn that those little differences, uh, you know. There is, Brad, and you probably experienced this, but like the difference between like 5,000 feet and then when you breach like the 7,000, 7,500 foot mark is like astronomical when you're yeah. living up there. Yeah. Did you experience that when you were living there and you'd go down or were you living closer to like we five lived, or 6,000? We lived at like 68, 69. Okay. So it was, it was, that was my normal. And I do my speed work at like 73 and that like even those 400 feet, I felt like I doubled my altitude. But yeah, coming down when we drive home, we'd stop at rest stops and go for runs. I felt like I was just clicked right into tempo stride with aerobic heart rate. It just felt like I never felt fast speed wise coming down. Even the first mile of most of my races, when I'd come down, I'd think I feel a little sluggish, but then you never had a bad race from that point on. Like as soon as you got into the race, it just felt manageable. Davija, Jacksonville was your first race race in a while, I think, right? Did you, what was your feeling like first mile compared to the rest of the race? Did you, were you a sluggish or did you feel in control right from the start? I came out the gate at like, I think I came out at like 440 pace. Like we were cooking that first, because that was like the only runnable spot we were going to have until almost the bucket carry. So I was like, I'm just going to take advantage of it because the rest of it's going to be a slog. And then we hit the mud and water and it, it, it didn't matter anymore. It all evened out. And yeah, that race kind of sucked. Like as far as like my skill set, it was not in favor. I mean, it was flat and there was some good running, but all that water and mud, I just, uh, I didn't have any experience with anything like that other than just like relying on my fitness to kind of jump through the water. And, uh, yeah, I think we, I've talked about this a few times, but like Josiah and, Kempson did really well through that water. I think Kempson just like gave it everything he had to stay with Josiah, to stay at the front yeah. because that's what he does. He like, he's at the front until he's not. And uh, Josiah was just like comfortable, probably ran in the snow a lot or something. I don't know, but it was a, it was a pain. Josiah might be the most impressive looking sloppy terrain runner in terms of just his effortless stride uh, on your Instagram story today. You actually talked about that very thing, how fast does not equal hard, like smooth and relaxed is the only way to really sustain speed. And immediately I thought that's exactly right. And there's only one exception. And that's Ryan Kempson. He's, he's the guy that never looks comfortable. He always looks like he's thrashing himself and he probably is. Yeah. I, I uh, heard him say a couple of times that like he likes to redline. He just redlines and goes for it and sees if it sticks. And I think that was an example at Hildervat mm-hmm. too. Um, like in that second, like semifinal round, he went out hot. Like I, I went out as hard as I possibly could, knowing that I had to get a gap on everybody. And I, I wanted to kind of um, leave Kempson behind so that Atkins would like latch onto him and go for him rather than mm-hmm. me. So I wanted to get myself out of the picture, but, um, he went out hot. He tried to come with me and he, and he did it until he couldn't. 
And I think he's he's like the Kenyan of the field. He's going to run the winning race until mm. until he can't. That's exactly it. That's a great, great summary of him. He's got that African mindset of run a world record every step until you can't anymore. And then whatever's left is what happens. Yeah, pretty much. And, it, and it's worked for him. I mean, and I applaud that. That's a, that's a hard mindset to have, to be willing to run past what you think you can do or maybe what your body says you can mm-hmm. do. That's like, that's strong. That's really strong. I, I want to I get to Hildervat and some other things with that, but I want to stay on this elevation thing for like two more seconds because you're one of the few who like has the perspective of both living at, like you lived at sea level, the quintessential sea level, and then you came up to race at yeah. elevation. You know how that feels. And now you're finally somewhat on your way to acclimation, um, and now you get to go down to sea level and race. So I just want to like pick that apart a little bit. Um, first of all, there's this whole like, you know, you hear about people who live at sea level and then acclimating for a mountain race at elevation. That's a whole big talk. But then there's the reverse of that. And now you got tenured people who live at elevation who talk about going down to sea level and being prepared to race. Oh, my body feels sluggish for two or three days. And then I feel good. So I can't go down to sea level and race day one or two. I need to wait. And then there's some who want to get there right away and, and race. Have you played with any of that? And have you experienced, like, what does it feel like for you now coming from elevation down to sea level to race? Like Bracken asked a little bit about Jacksonville, but like, how does your body feel? Have you figured that out yet? Because I know that's a real concern for people who live and then come down to race. Yeah. Um, at first, uh, like, like the first time I came down, I can't argue with the results. I, I, the running felt the same, but the heart rate was way lower. And that was really cool. But something that I have experienced, especially since I haven't been doing as much intensity, is my heart rate gets a heck of a lot higher when I go down to sea level. Mm-hmm. When I raced in, like, historically, you look at my 2019 season when I was, like, my first real, like, good year of racing. Those races, I was in the mid-170s for an entire race. That was, like, my racing heart rate. And then for shorter stuff, like the mile that I did last year, I touched in that 183, 184 range for the mile, right? I went out to Jacksonville and I raced and my heart rate was popped, dude. I was in the 180s almost the entire time, Hmm. which I'd never done before. And I've experienced that a couple times now. When I go down to sea level and race, or at least like lower altitudes, my heart rate is willing to go a lot higher. And I don't know if that's good or bad or or just some weird response, Um when I was at Hildervat, just going to yep. jump ahead real quick. The semifinal round, I wore a heart rate monitor, and my heart rate was 190 to 193 the entire race. Heat combined with sea level combined with a hard effort. I think it was those things and dehydration, but it was so hot. It was ridiculously hot. Like we ran in the middle of the day. We ran at like 1130 <laughs> to noon or something. So hottest point of the day, right on the beach, the sun's like bouncing off the sand and hitting you. This is Florida for those who aren't familiar. This is Florida in the middle yes, of the day. Right on the beach in Jacksonville. So I think that the heat did have something to do with that, but I had never seen 190 at any point in, in all of my running career. Like I've never touched 190 and then I sat there for 20 minutes. So uh, that was new. But across the board, I have seen higher heart rates for harder efforts, but they feel the same as the lower heart rates did. So I don't know if that's 
saying that those efforts are costing me more to do the same things or if my body is just okay with hitting those higher heart rates but then i, I gotta do some like metabolic testing up here at altitude and, and figure out what's going on but it's it's definitely been some changes that i haven't seen before it's weird kirk i don't know what you noticed at altitude but i noticed that my heart rate rose way quicker and topped out way lower 100 percent. i noticed the exact same thing if I run up a hill, I'm eight to 10 beats higher than I would be at sea level, but like I can't get within 10 beats of my sea level max. Yep. I'm about five beats lower at, at uh, altitude, even with the same or more exertion, I can't get it there, but it goes there right away. And then it just plateaus. We need some sort of physiologist to message us. Well, VJ, I don't know if this makes you feel better or worse, but um, I've had two athletes now. I got a number of athletes, happen to have a Utah gang who I, who I coach, and they come down to these sea level races, cool. and their heart rate is like 10 beats a minute higher for the race uh, at sea level than it normally would be for any hard effort or race at altitude. So it's not just you, it for sure is them uh, as well. So like, I think there's definitely something to that. It must be something with the fact that like, you have such saturated oxygen in your blood compared to normal that I feel like your heart can probably sustain a higher rate of work for longer. So it just drifts until it can't anymore where, I don't know, I'm sure somebody can message us that's much smarter than we are and tell us, but it's consistent across the board, point being. So it's normal. Well, that's that's good to know that I'm not like having some heart problems or something. You're not. When I came down, from Colorado to race, I refused to race with a heart rate monitor. That That's what I did for the finals at Hildervat. I saw that in the semifinals. I took my heart rate monitor off and I did not wear it for the, the final round. I didn't even want to know. What the heart was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it messed with uh, my first tempo I did down. I came down to go home for a funeral and I, I tempoed and I was like, this is messing with me too much. I can't see this in the middle of a race because I'm going to make assumptions that may or may not be correct, but they're, that's not good for me to even know that for a short race. Yeah. Um, and I've become less of a, you know, machine about heart rate. It used to be like, I only train on heart rate and that's the only input that I have. Um, you know, if my heart rate's getting too high, I slow down like every time. And I've, kind of been more comfortable with racing at feel. I feel like I've had, you know, enough experience in training and and in racing to know what my body is capable of and know what things feel like. So I've been okay with letting myself in workouts and things move out of my prescribed ranges uh, based on feel and just knowing what my body's capable of and, and knowing what feels relaxed. And I feel like that's that's been a lot better for me, like having the data and using that, but also using my own knowledge of myself to kind of, you know, move in between those energy systems and things like that. We get the question all the time, right? Should I do heart rate or pace? And they, yes. yeah, yes. And it really depends on your stage as an athlete. The, the more of a novice you are, the more you need real time feedback to tell you if what you're feeling is real. And eventually you get to the point where you know exactly what it's going to tell you anyways. And it's time to start taking some calculated risks or chances. And it, it, it changes throughout time. There was a time where I refused to train by heart rate and a time where I wouldn't train by anything, but and a time where I want to do 50, 50. And it's, you know, it just, it really depends on your fitness and your mindset at that time. Yeah. And I, I feel like the athletes that are super seasoned that have been training for, you know, decades now, 
uh, they probably don't even need the heart rate monitor. They're so familiar with what they're doing. I, I read a, uh, a snippet from Killian Journey that said that he can estimate his heart rate within two or three beats at any given time because he's done so much training with it and he just knows himself so well. Mm-hmm. That's I aspire to that. I want to get on that like that like monk level where I can just tell where I'm at, know all, all about myself. That's pretty cool. I'm nowhere near as accurate with heart rate. I know two zones. I know aerobic and I know a lactate threshold with my heart rate, but I could not pick it in between and give you yeah. a good option. That's a pretty cool goal to have. Yeah, pretty much. Like th- Those are the two things that you work off. Like I don't really understand when people say aerobic threshold because so many people have different, you know, definitions for what that means. But, um, but yeah, you know, your aerobic zone and then, you know, like lactate threshold, those are the things that you work off. Ventilatory threshold one and ventilatory threshold two. Is that better? I don't want to mess with any of that, dude. Like, there's so many different terms. Like every book that you read about like training and heart mm-hmm. rate training, they all have different terms talking about the same things. It's like, we, we got to decide on like a, an across the board term that we can all agree with because like, how about, how about hard and easy? How does that work? That's the, the African method. Mm-hmm. That's the Kenyan. I'm going to go out, I'm going to run 20 miles and I'm going to be easy. Yeah. And then we're going to go do, you know, intervals for 13 miles. We're going to go hard. That's pretty much what they do. I still subscribe to that hard, easy principle. Um, I want to talk about the opposite, VJ, which is pre-Colorado living. Um, I would say, and Bracken and I want to dissect this actually a little bit on the mental side, but we'll get to that in a bit. But um, you're probably the most consistent racer even previous to Colorado, you never really had a, I wouldn't say you had real bad races. Once you came into your own and you weren't at the beast distance at least, but the exception would have been once in a while when you came from sea level to elevation, right? You would have a race that you weren't quite happy yeah. with. But other than that, you were fairly predictable with the fact that you're going to go out and you're going to have yourself a decent race. How would you describe the feeling, the difference between now coming from sea level and going and racing at elevation and now living at elevation and like training hard at elevation. Like how would you, how would you compare the two if you had to? Um, I definitely feel like I have the tools to perform at these races at elevation. Um, Now or before? But I haven't Uh, now, now I I don't know how it's going to go. I still haven't done any races at elevation. This weekend will be my first like, um, obstacle course race at You're elevation. Colorado, I so we'll see Colorado Springs. Yeah. Um, but it's not going to be a mountainous race. It's not like we're going to go test my hill running legs. So it's going to be relatively flat, I think based on what I've seen from the course, but I'm really excited to see what I can do when we get to these, these mountainous races. Um, I won't be going to Utah just cause it's still not in my wheelhouse and I don't think it's worth chasing it like it's not all the smart the kids are, are dodging not gonna that race. Have... all the smart ones are dodging that race yeah like it's it's not for me and i know that uh you know johnny's just gonna obliterate me if i go so i'd rather stick to what i can perform at but every i i picked up on that too i thought it was just mountain races like oh i'm just failing at these mountain races and i can't climb well and i realized every mountain race that i've fallen apart at it's been at altitude mm-hmm. you know every one and when we went to races that were, you know, had decent amounts of climbing, I stayed competitive. Like when we look at Monterey, 
or something like that. It's not a mountainous race, but there is a fair amount of climbing in the first half of that course. And I stayed competitive through those. Mm-hmm. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to see what happens when, you know, we look towards the end of the year, we get big bear, uh, OCR worlds and Stratton. Well, that's not really altitude, right? No. That's, mm-hmm. that's like low. That's what, like 3000 feet or something like that. We've already proved you can handle Stratton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've done okay there. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to see what happens. I've, I've noticed the same thing that you were saying with heart rate getting super high on climbs and a lot easier. It's made me, uh, work on my power hiking a little bit. There's this local mountain right behind me, uh, Mount Herman. It's in monument. And I love climbing that hill. Joe Gray has the segment on it. And, uh, I think about it every time I'm climbing up, like what is Joe Gray doing on this hill? I'm going to try to get it. How far off are you? What's his, what's yours? I think I'm like two minutes, three minutes off or something for a 20, like a 23 minute effort or something, which is a lot. But I, so I, I went hard after it one day um, in the snow, the first mile. So it's a mile and a half long. The first mile up, I was within 30 seconds of him the entire time. And then you make a, a left turn at a split and you climb up to the peak and there was a foot and a half of snow the rest of the way. And I lost all of my time there. So I'm convinced that I would have finished within a minute of him if I had stayed on that same effort. And that was a few months ago. So I'm going to give an effort to that. And uh, I'm convinced that I can beat that time. And then he'll come out the next day and obliterate it just because he can. But I'm going to have that for a few hours that I can beat him on a segment. He's the unicorn of the mountain world. He is tall. He is athletic. And he has serious track speed. And he's one of those people that can translate his track speed to the mountains and the trails. Most people can't. And he's doing his, when I lived out there, he was meeting up with the, the Army's world-class athletic program uh, career and all them to do their track interval sessions. I think he still does. I think he still works with um, yeah. a few, like, I know there's a Kenyan training group out here. Um, and I still think he shows up for those track sessions. But I've been learning that a lot of these really great trail runners, they don't run on trails and climb nearly as much as I thought. Once, twice they'll a week. They'll run rolling stuff, and they'll really nail their flat run. Yeah. they got leg speed for days. But it translates to them having this great climbing performance. And... Um, I think that's a lot of like specific key workouts in the climbing world, but also doing, um, you know, more like neuromuscular stuff for sure with like hill strides and, uh, you know, power strides and stuff like that. And that's, I'm, I've been kind of integrating that sort of stuff into the training. Now. Um, I got someone that's kind of guiding me on a little bit of a new training path. Um, and it's been, it's been good so far. So I'm, I'm excited to see how it plays out, but I'm not focusing on like big climbing workouts until we get a little further into the year. It's funny because in our sport, we're all babies in the mountains. So we're all doing big workouts to try to build up that our mountain legs. Those people mm-hmm. have such great mountain endurance that they're, they're playing chess in the mountains where we're all just trying to like stack up Kings and checkers. You know, it's there. We're not in the same place, but off off mic today, you and I had a brief conversation and they, they do have one other thing in their back, back pocket that we don't, which is why their running translates so well. And what is that? Unfortunately, weight. That is right. 
I thought you were going like the EPO route or something naughty. I mean, I'm sure there's people in our sport with that too. But the fact is that these guys are the stereotypical distance runner at the 115 to 125 pounds. And that runs uphill a little bit different than 160 to 200 does. Mm-hmm. And it, we don't ever yeah. want to focus on weight on this podcast because it's such a slippery slope. But at the end of the day, the very tip of the spear in terms of running are, will always be extremely light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I'm one of the leaner people in OCR. Like I'm, I'm definitely on the leaner side. Most of the competitors that I race against are heavier or at least bulkier than I am. Um, and even then I'm not light, like I'm not in the normal runner build, even with my like normal leanness that I have, I'm still up in that 170 range when this same frame in high school, like I was the same height was, you know, upper one forties. So it's a huge difference. And, and uh, learning that and understanding that has been kind of crazy. And part of me wants to, you know, drop some weight and see what happens in the running world. Like if I got any like substantial bit faster, but I still like OCR, so I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Every little bit of non-running portion that gets thrown into a race rewards those extra pounds. And punishes not that's having true. those. And that's, it's, it, it comes down to, do we want to be one dimensional or multidimensional? And so I don't, I don't judge those one dimensional athletes who are extremely fine tuned and every ounce is off of them as long as they do it in a healthy way. But we, unfortunately, or fortunately, probably can't afford that. I'd ask, well, I'd asked you originally about the, the, how it felt to go from sea level to altitude and then now how it, how it is to live at altitude and then like at least work hard at altitude, which I know you've done in workouts for me, I've acclimated only in three months, twice in my college career. But it was like, when I come up to race at elevation and I live at like 700 feet or 600 feet here in Minnesota above sea level, every time I go to elevation, I don't have any choices to make. There's one choice and it's hang on for dear life. That's my one choice. Every time I race. And when I, and when I, and when I everything good over there. Um, I'm not sure. I'm thinking it had something to do with the dog not being controlled and him attacking something. <laughs> My puppy is very excitable. Um, and you have to keep him under control. My girlfriend just came home from work and let him out. And now he's, uh, he's wreaking havoc. Upstairs. All seems quiet again. I, uh, but the, but the difference is, and then if I'm acclimated at elevation, I have choices to make in a race. And the choices are how to control my effort. And if I need to surge, that's an option. Whereas if I'm not acclimated, it's like, all right, you're going to hit your max heart rate on this day and you're going to hold a percentage as high, as much of that as you can, as long as you can until you, your body gives out on you. So like, I don't know, do you, do you have any comparatives that way? Like as far as gauging your effort on both, or have you still yet to experience like a good comparative? I'm going to figure myself out a little more this weekend as far as racing efforts and workouts. I've become much more familiar with what's sustainable here and what's not. Um, I definitely have this, this threshold where I cross when I cross over that certain heart rate or that certain effort, it becomes a survival versus being in Mm. control. When, when I'm in control and I'm running fast, it feels good. Um, it's nice. 
You know, it's like what you want to feel in a race and what you feel on your best race days when you're, you know, fighting for the win. A lot of times you're in, that's the day that you're in control of yourself. Um, a lot of workouts I've experienced, I've experienced that when I push past that, I sink into this, like, um, the survival pace, which is still a good pace. Like I can, when I blow up in a race, like if I've pushed past that, I can still settle back to, you know, like a 545 or 550 pace and it sits there. And, you know, I don't have anything left. If I had to sprint or if I had to battle it out with somebody, that's all I have to give. And it takes a long time to like recover enough to get back in control. Um, but I, I, again, I haven't raced up here enough. I've done like a local 5k and I did a little like trail race that was a 10k. So that's, uh, the, the, all the experience that I have. So we'll, we'll see how it feels to do an obstacle race up here. The, I think you have the best racing style for that, which is you don't always seem to be dependent upon getting out hard. seems like the higher the altitude, the more it helps to build into a race. And so luckily you seem to be someone who's confident running your strategy from the beginning. We've seen it in the past where you may not take the lead until a half mile or a mile, but then you don't give it back after that. And I think that rewards itself at altitude. I'm hoping so. Because when you tip at altitude, you tip and it takes longer to get back. Yeah. And the earlier the tip, the more you're screwed, obviously. So Yeah, dude. It's like there there isn't really heart rate recovery up here. Even when I've done you know, say a threshold interval, five to eight minutes, even 10 minutes. When you drop back down to that jog, it's your heart rate stays up for a good two to three minutes before it decides to finally dip back down. And it's been getting better over time, but it's still never as comparative to, to what you would hit at sea level. It's wild, but yeah. All right, Bracken, you were going to go somewhere. I, I interrupted. Not, not interrupted. I think it was the next progression of what you were talking about, how his consistency in the past was, was always pretty consistent, <laughs> for lack of better terms. But since you arrived, since you stamped that first year where you came out and you won, what was it? It was San, not San Jose. It was some California race. What was that, Kirk? When? Yeah, you were there. SoCal. SoCal. SoCal, SoCal and then you won Vegas beating Hobie and Cody, and then you won Alabama. I feel like that was your I'm here now moment. From that moment on, would you say no? But you grimaced. No, yeah, yeah, for sure. That was, no, that was definitely like, um, I, I don't think that I did anything differently, you know, leading into that year, and I really put a lot of effort into yeah. it. It was like the consistency of the last couple of years, plus I think I like, hit like a like the last little bit of puberty and i grew into my body a little bit and it and it worked yeah for sure that, that that's absolutely what happened but since that moment alabama you stamped it like those previous two were just confirmed by this since that moment i don't know if we've seen you had have an actual bad race at anything 90 minutes or less You've just, when you, Kirk and I were talking about this off mic, when you show up to a race, you have to have the highest winning percentage of anyone else out there since that start of that, since that SoCal race on, when you show up to race more likely than not, you're going to win it. And that is, that's a difficult thing to do. Now you've, 
you've not been shy about the fact that you just won't go to races that you don't feel are good for you. And I think that's what yeah. normal athletes do in other sports other than ours is you just play to your strengths. But what we were curious about is how do you month in, month out, year in, year out, show up to all your races ready? Is it that you're just working at a higher capacity than the rest of us? And even if you're only at 85 or 90%, you're ready to roll? Or are you extremely structured in how you arrive to races? I want to know why you're always on when you're there. Um, I think that I, I, it's, it's a hard thing to say. And it's definitely not capacity. I'm not working at high volumes. I'm not maintaining intense training all the time. Um, I'd say I'm on the lower volume scale of a lot of the athletes in the sport, um, especially as far as uh, how much intensity is going into training, but that, how many quality workouts per week, that, that sort of thing. That speaks to skill level more than anything, that you don't need that to remain effective. I do a lot of skill work. Um, you know, I feel like that's one of the biggest things that Rich Diaz put into my head early is make sure that your skills are sharp um, before you try to pile lots of work on top of it. I'm going to derail my own question, but define skill work for everyone listening, because a lot of people have, you talk about different definitions of thresholds. Skill work has a lot of different interpretations for people. So from a running standpoint, skill work goes into um, mechanics, you know, and it's mainly at higher speed when I talk about mechanics, like when you're running slower, um, yes, there's a, better and correct way to run and it helps as far as longevity and things like that but when it comes to speed when it comes to efficiency what you guys like to call staying power i think mechanics is a huge like piece in the puzzle of of putting together like solid races and unlocking like next level speed so from early on i put a lot of work into my mechanics even before i met rich now when i met rich we kind of perfected things and we worked on it for a few years and it didn't really click. Nothing really was this huge like door opening moment of this is the right way to do it until 2019, a week before going to Alabama, we did these things called motor skill development drills where you start at a slow pace, you build up to a fast pace and you push on that threshold, that mechanical threshold of where you're still holding uh, correct ground contact, your cadence isn't like blown out and you're at like your most efficient, like running state, but you push the pace at which you're there. So, so he's, he's cranking it until you start overstriding or arms flail or yes. something breaks down. So it's a true mechanical threshold. Exactly. And it's not meant to push, uh, your fitness. It's not like we're, we're running at a certain pace for a super long time. It's that we slowly build pace we hold cadence, we hold uh, ground contact, make sure that things are still there. And once you push past that, I start reaching or my cadence starts to get too fast to where it's not efficient for a long time. We step off, we recover, we build back up again. So we were doing things like that. And something about that day, things clicked. We were hitting 440 mile pace and it felt beautiful. I, I can't describe it as anything other than that. It was like an eye-opening thing. That one day, that one session, something clicked where I found what I would call a float. Something about the way I was hitting the ground, my force production was perfect. It was striking exactly where it needed to be. I was using, you know, basically like momentum and, and gravity with me 
And I was spending more time off the ground than on the ground. And it was just effortless. I felt like I could have sat there for days. And it, it, it was, it, you don't feel that every time you do that work. But now that I've touched that, that I felt that I always strive to recreate those same things. And I do work like that often to make sure that the mechanics are still being focused hmm. on. How often? Once a week. Really? As part of a to a quality day or what? Um, yeah, I do. I incorporate it a lot in, in workouts um, or before workouts, part of the warm up, and especially before uh, like race days leading into races the day before. Like set it in stone, remember it fresh in your mind, and then start your workout when you know what it should feel like kind of thing? Exactly. Like I'll do different form and mechanics drills uh, for different workouts. Uh, one thing I really like to do for track workouts is I have a drag bag that I load with like 10 to 15 pounds, super light, but just enough to get a little resistance around the waist to work on um, forward lean and ground contact before I go into um, like a track session. I really like that. So I'll do strides like that right before the track workout, take it off and try to mimic that exact feel, that same push rather than pull in those reps. So um, lots of stuff like that. And I feel that that work has really made it to where even when I'm out of shape, I can efficiently get to a certain place that's still competitive. Um, like, I don't feel like I was in shape in Jacksonville. Like, I, I wasn't the best that I'd ever been. I'd say I was in better shape the year prior when I got beat. So um, I was prepared for that race. But you're accessing a higher percentage of your fitness every step of the way. Exactly. Like at, at any point, even when I'm not in peak training, I think I can go sub five in the mile pretty comfortably, even at altitude here. Like it might hurt more up here, but that pace is always accessible because my mechanics are dialed in. And th there's a lot of people that will disagree with me and say that, you know, you run the way you run and all this sort of stuff. And I couldn't disagree more that like, if you can dial in your mechanics, you can unlock more speed just by changing the way that you're moving and not fighting yourself the entire way. And I feel like that's what's kept me really competitive um, in all times of the season versus, you know, having to work on my fitness the whole time. When the fitness aligns with that ability, that's when things get dangerous. Mm. What, uh, what, now that you're not, a, a lot of this comes back to your work with Rich. And I think you're lucky because Rich got yeah. a hold of you at a young age or vice versa. You got a hold of Rich at a young age. A lot of things. Well, when you're, when you're developing skill and you're just coming into your own as a runner like that, that development stage is super important and you hold on to that through your adulthood. So you're, you're pretty lucky in that way. I would say, um, I assume rich, uh, the idea of pulling 10 or 15 pounds and ups that probably came from him. Maybe not. Um, but I guess my question is now that you're not there all the time, you were there on a weekly basis. Now you're not like, how has that affected your focus on your mechanics and your drills and your relationship with him? Like, is that, have you already just, you just, he's passed, passed the torch to you and you just carry on prescription or has that been difficult? Um, I feel like as an athlete, not just like a person, but as an athlete, I've tried to study him and understand him more than a lot of other people have. Um, even from our early days, our first like year working together, I always asked him a lot of questions. We had phone calls all the time. Um, I truly tried to understand everything that he was doing, every 
every new little drill, anything like that, I wanted to understand everything about it. So I really picked his brain to the best that I could. And I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of where he's coming from more than most of the people that have worked with him. Um, so I feel really comfortable doing a lot of the work that I do as far as keeping my mechanics in touch and, uh, you know, self-analysis, things like that. And I like to keep it in, in touch because it's been such a great tool for me. And it's, it's really been, uh, I, I'd say one of the most important things, if not the most important thing to pro progress my running career. So I, uh, I mean, I still talk to him every week. We do a training program together. Um, and then we chat for a few minutes afterwards about whatever, what's going on with him, what's going on with me. And then he still advises me in my training and, and what he thinks I should be doing, um, going into these different events and things like that. But yeah, I feel like since I made such an effort to understand him and, uh, you know, replicate what he does and truly understand why he's doing what he's doing, I feel like I'm in a good place to, to kind of do some self-treatment along the way. Okay. Well, well, my follow-up question to that then is, um, obviously you're still in touch with them and there's still some exercise prescription being shared, but when you talk about like the skill work and doing the things that you've learned, like workouts aside, forget the track work, forget the mountain threshold work. Let's talk about like the skill work, the auxiliary work, the stuff that nobody sees you do. How, how many times per week are you in, in training doing things that are non, I'm not trying to build my fitness here. I'm trying to become more biomechanically efficient. Like how often are you doing those things? Um, I try to keep it in once a week. Once a week. And what would that session week. look like? Um, if I'm not doing a prescribed like interval session or something like that, where I can integrate it into the warm up and, and have that be a part of it. Um, some of the days I'll finish an easy run with when, you know, you'd normally go out for strides, but instead I'll switch it with um, motor skill development because we're still going to touch speed. We're still going to go faster but in this case, we're focusing on mechanics um, in like, so it's just like a longer stride session because it takes longer to get up to speed. And I still do different drills. Like um, with my treadmill, I'll hook up a resistance band around my waist, do some faster pace with that, take it off, move into that. Because I, I don't need to do a lot of the fundamental drills that are... Um, needed when you're first getting someone to change the mechanics, when you're first trying to reprogram those movement patterns. A lot of those initial drills that people need to do for a, a lot in those like first three months, I don't need to do those as much anymore. I can pretty much do it in a stride fashion where I'm just keeping myself in check. And, um, you know, the paces get faster and faster to where, you know, I can touch that 430, 420 pace and still be in a good place from a mechanic standpoint. So um, I feel like that's a, a really big thing as far as like percentages. Like when people talk about percentages of their maximum lift, you know, if you're asked to do 80% of your lift when someone else that's 90% of their lift, it's going to cost them a ton more. So when we go out to a race and the winning pace is hitting a 520 mile, like I can touch a 420 mile pace with good mechanics. So if you scale that back a minute, it's not nearly as close to my max as it would be for someone else, right? Like I'm not pushing up at my mechanical threshold, like hoping that I can hit those paces. They're available to me. That's, 
you touched upon a few things, but that one right there is really key for people to hear. Because you always hear, like, I was an 11-1 sprinter in high school. I'm going to run 14 minutes this this year in a 5K because I have that speed. But you don't. Yeah. Because it's not the same. It's not even the same stride. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like switching cars. Absolutely. <laughs> You're taking your sports car out. Yeah. And then you park the car and you pull out your minivan. Like, I'm a fast driver. <laughs> You're not using the same vehicle. And that your concept of that mechanical threshold at 420 versus someone pumping their arms and flailing in sprinter form at 420, like that is not the same. And then it's not accessible. That's really important right there for people to hear. Kirk and I always say, like, we get as much out of these sessions as anyone else does. And you've said a few things today that makes me think, man, I've got to re-evaluate a few of the things I think about because I can't remember the last time I thought about mechanical threshold. And yet it rules everything. Kirk and I talk about those guys in college we knew who were average to good and they went and ran a hundred miles a week all summer. And then they come back and run a four ten mile, their first indoor race. And they're a 10 K guy. And we always talk about the power of that huge engine they built up. But what you're talking about speaks to the mechanical side of that, where you can do a ton of speed drills and get that in, or you can spend three months running 120 miles a week and your body kind of self-levels. Like it, if you do the same stride long enough, it gets a little shorter and more compact. Your, your body finds shortcuts to get to its optimum place if you don't get injured or do something bad along the way. Not everyone can go through that, but I think one of the pieces I've always missed is that they just got more efficient and mechanically sound over the course of their hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles where you did the same process in a low volume way, working on skill quality rather than volume quantity. But you got to the same point where those guys go out and run and you can tell you've run for a decade of high mileage. You go out and run and you look like you've run for a decade of high mileage, but you got there in a different manner. Yeah, kind of. Um, from a like a skill standpoint, yes. I, yeah. I put a lot of work in there. I'm but- not talking engine. I'm talking refinement of stride. That some people do it through a million miles and other people do it through quality rep. And that's that's not something I've thought about in a long time. But I don't believe, VJ, you're talking about – you're not even talking about going and I'm going to go run a 400-meter repeat at 65 seconds or 420 pace. You're talking I'm going to get my stride up to 420 pace, feel it for 10 seconds, and then shut it down. Is that correct? Or which? How is, what's your approach there? Um, it's still – like I can go do a, a 65 second rep at, at 400. It's not really helpful at this point. Like I'm never going to try to develop like staying power at uh, 65. Like it's not really worth my time uh, yet. Never know. But mm. um, yeah, for I'll do it in a short fashion. So when I start the repeat, I might be at, you know, 630 pace and I build it. I build it because you can't just introduce that fast pace and hope to be like, you know, efficient with it. So it's specifically about trying to maintain those mechanics up until a fast pace. Um, and I can, I can reach like ridiculous speeds with good mechanics, but you have like, it, it doesn't last very long. So for example, I might build from 10 miles an hour to 15 miles an hour and the wheels fall off right about there, shut it down. I take a step back um, and then do like some shorter intervals at a pace that, you know, is slightly above what a good race pace would be. So if I want to race at 515, I'll set up at 450, 
do some like 10 to 15 second intervals there, mainly working on efficiency, making sure it feels good, um, less about the fitness. Because if you start fatiguing, when your body starts to like fatigue and fall apart, your mechanics tend to go with it too. So you don't want to be battling fatigue when you're trying to create, you know, neurological adjustments, right? When you're trying to Mm -hmm. work your nervous system, you don't need to be shocking your muscles with lactate and and things like that. So um, they're usually shorter duration intervals. Yeah. Okay. What what do we talk about, Brad? Can we say, hey, even if you're in a base building in quotes phase, if you add in 15 second progressive strides hitting top speed and shutting it down by 30 seconds in, you can maintain a lot of really good efficiency and fitness just based off of maybe not your ability to buffer lactate, but your ability to move efficiently. So there's like a lot of merit to that. And so just hearing that you, you practice that on a weekly basis, just something that I'm guessing 95% of the people listening aren't doing, including myself. And I think that's just very valuable. Efficiency is, is better than fitness if your fitness can't be used efficiently, right? So that's a great statement. Put that on a poster. I might. Maybe you shortcut my next question. Shoot. What was your question? Which was, how <laughs> did you possibly win Jacksonville and Hildervat off one quality session per week? And the answer, I don't want to give it for you, but starts with there's a lot of skill work that plays into like disguising quality work almost like you get some of that quality benefit by pairing your skill with your aerobic capacity. But talk to me about that one quality a week. If, if you would have asked me, what is VJ doing? Well, I've seen you on your obstacle course on Instagram running fast, doing things like that. And I've seen you winning short races. I would have guessed you built up for periodized and peaked for Jacksonville and then did another rebuild and peak for Hildervat because you wanted to be the, the just come in knowing that I'm the nastiest kid out here. And instead, it sounds like you did one quality session per week. So join those together for me. Bridge that gap. So long-term building fitness like this year i'm trying to create an upward trajectory all the way to ocr worlds that's what i want i want the whole season to look kind of like this so i plan to progress and continue to get better through that whole thing but one thing i want to do when i get there is i want to be at a higher volume than i ever have Um, so for that something i've really struggled with even with a lot of rich's help um, i've always struggled maintaining volume i'll have two really good weeks three really good weeks and then I don't know if it's my, like my personally, my brain shuts down or, or what happens, but it's never sustainable. Something always happens. So um, I started talking to um, a lady named Megan Roche mm-hmm. or Roche Roche. I honestly don't know how to pronounce her last name, but um, she coaches Johnny Luna mm-hmm. Lima. And I needed someone that, you know, has worked with a lot of athletes and built volume and someone that, you know, understands high level athletes, which she is one herself. She's a fantastic athlete. Like, um, I think she's like been like to national championships for trail running many times, that sort of thing. So she's been helping me with the more conditioning side of things and trying to build volume. So I've been following her running workouts to a T like, she programs all the running stuff and I add in strength and then some OCR specific stuff during the week. So since we're trying to build and build sustainability and volume, we've been doing one workout a week pretty much that is usually a little more threshold based. 
longer staying power workouts, and then a couple like faster strides here and there, but it's no track sessions, nothing like that. Um, leading into Hildervat, I did a lot of work on the obstacle course. Um, I think that that's more of a neurological adjustment, your body being able to transition between hard running into an obstacle and then hard running out. I don't think that's a fitness thing. I think that that's uh, your body just learning how to handle that. So like two and a half weeks out, I started doing more obstacle work, obstacle density things to be able to go back to back on those. Um, how much running would be in a session like that? Uh, I would do say 45 minutes, to, 45 to 60 minutes of running on the obstacle course, easy laps most of the time, but hitting obstacles every lap, even in easy format and have a couple hard pushes where I hit a few obstacles. I run like two, 300 meters, hit a few more obstacles and get used to that. But it wasn't, it wasn't a huge session. Um, I'd say I'd probably accumulate maybe 10 minutes of intensity throughout the entire thing. Still a skill um, session. And it kind of, yeah, kind of an obstacle skill session versus a, a running skill session. So I want to, I want to interject just real quick and say, you said two and a half weeks out, which some people would be like sweating two and a half weeks out from a race of importance. And that's when you decide to get dialed in. And I just want people to like, soak that up because oftentimes as a coach and Brack, and maybe you're the same and maybe you too VJ because I know you're coaching now like I will prescribe like let's work on your foundation and we can sharpen the skill work and the transition work much closer to races than you think and we may not implement OCR work until four weeks out and people push the panic button and be like I got a race in a month oh no you'd be mm -hmm. shocked how close if you can build the right foundation and then refine with skill work I mean, two and a half weeks out isn't very long. So I just want that to resonate with people that because that's important. It's not like it's something you need to necessarily focus on if you're trying to build fitness, but you can throw it in at the right times when it's close to the event and still be very effective. So that's my personal take. So I'm just good to hear, glad to hear you say that as well. Yeah. Do you agree yeah, with that? Um, what, totally, totally. Um, especially sharpening for a race, like topping out that like anaerobic fitness, um, I think people don't understand that uh, a lot of the adaptations that you have when you're running at like, you know, doing track sessions, you're doing anaerobic style training, that a lot of those adaptations are chemical, your body getting used to that energy system and that sort of thing. It's not like physiological changes that happen when you're doing aerobic training that take long times to set in. You can gain a decent amount of fitness a day after doing an intense workout session. But since people don't do intensity all the time, they don't like feel it day to day. Um, so yeah, but from an obstacle skill standpoint, I was, I, I had confidence in my running and where it was, I didn't have confidence in my transition ability. So leading into the race that those three weeks, that wasn't me trying to build like, you know, top end speed and and anaerobic fitness, that was me specifically focusing on the skill of transitioning from a hard run into an obstacle and back into a hard run. Where I'm running full speed, jumping into an obstacle, I hit the bell and as soon as my feet touch the ground, I'm accelerating right back into race pace. And um, I, I honestly don't think that's a fitness thing. I think that's your body learning how to handle that. Um, so I don't, I don't think it takes a long time to adapt. I agree. 
two and a half weeks out, yeah. how many sessions did you squeeze in like that of skill-based and neuromuscular development? I might be exaggerating. It might have been like more like three and a half weeks. Still. But I was doing it – so I was running obstacles twice a week. My, I would do it on Tuesday, but that was only low intensity, no fast running. I would just basically go like do an aerobic hour, but I was hitting obstacles, um, you know – four to eight times a mile race effort obstacles or casual effort obstacles casual more than just getting the work done yeah. uh, not trying to overdo it so that's where i was there and then on saturdays i would do the more intense obstacle day where it was alternating the easy running and then going into a harder effort that sort of thing um and it got more intense as we got closer. So that was probably the only time that I was doing two intensity sessions a week because every Wednesday we had our like threshold faster running um, sessions. The, uh, that was like running only. But then on Saturdays, I was integrating a little bit of intensity for obstacles. And, and most people wouldn't consider that sharpening, would they? And it kind of speaks to the, the classic, the limitation of the classic periodization schedule is that uh, people don't keep that skill present year round. They run base, then yep. they run threshold, then they run skill and chemical changes at the same time. So you might need six weeks of above, you know, anaerobic threshold work because they're trying to drive that mechanical efficiency and the chemical changes at the same time, where you only need to stack in the, the chemical changes. And there's right. a there's a huge advantage to that. That speaks to probably your staying power training wise, is that you don't have to be nasty every week, because you get fifty percent of the nasty benefits from your mechanical work. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really think about like the the intensity factor that takes place in the skill work because it's not like uh, a high level of it, but. But yeah, I'm definitely touching those things. You certainly train low volume, but you train high density in terms of what you get out of it. If th does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. You you probably get more density of training than a lot of high volume guys do because you're you're focusing on very intelligent pieces of it rather than just kind of slamming a lot of hard work together. Yeah. I I try like that. That was one thing that always scared me. Like I, as soon as I got into OCR and had the opportunity to like travel around, I got on the pro team 2017. I wanted to, I wanted to like start building up my volume, do everything I could to be as competitive as I could right away. And I heard like stories of athletes, you know, going pro before like going to college or things like that. And then them blowing up and having injuries and things like that. Cause they don't have the history that everyone else does. So I, I think that scared me a little too much because then I stayed lower volume for, I think longer than I needed to. Like at this point I should be, you know, capable of running, you know, like that 70, 80 mile week uh, comfortably. And I've never even touched that, not even close, you know, like I'm, I'm hoping to get up to like, I only do hours, but the equivalent of like, you know, a 55 to 60 mile week, that's my goal for the year. Um, so how do you feel? Like if you're doing 40 to 45 right now, that's just a guess. How do you feel on a weekly basis? Do you ever feel, do you ever feel run down? Like, oh, this is being a bit much. Or are you just always like, I'm ready to move up when coach is ready? 
it's been it's been really good and I feel really strong. And one one thing that has been a historic issue for me is not like eating enough. Um, and that's one thing I've really tried to to focus on and try to get like three full meals throughout the day with snacks. Because according to like metabolic tests and things that I've done throughout the years, I'm burning a ton of calories when I'm at rest. Like without going out for a workout, I'm still burning like 35 to 3,800 calories sitting on the couch every day. So I need to make sure that I'm like fueling right. And I can totally feel the difference between eating a meal before a workout and skipping that meal in the morning. Like that, that affects me days down the road. Like I'll, if I feel a little sluggish during that workout, I realize, oh, I, I didn't eat enough breakfast. Three days later, I feel sluggish. I feel terrible. Like I dug a hole for myself and I have to bring myself back up. So eating more has been huge and it hasn't been necessarily like what I'm eating. It's been more like how much am I eating? Like just eat as much as you can. And that's been huge because the, the strain on my body really isn't uh, that high right now. And I mean, that's the main focus. With, and, and right now, like uh, building up for the next races, I'm still only at one quality session a week. Uh, and everything else is pretty easy. You're a testament to like when you when you swing the hammer, swing it with purpose. At least make your time count, right? Like one quality yeah, workout absolutely. a week can work if it's coupled with the if the right ingredients are in the recipe, right? So like I think you're a testament to that. Um, I, I wanted to shift to the other side of the coin in which Bracken started this whole conversation on, and it was. Um, why have you been so successful and are you just so good that you can race down and still win or da, 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 And he asked you those questions. Um, I want to ask you this, this season, how many races have you run roughly? OCR. OCR um, I did. I did Jacksonville, the two days in Vegas. And then Hill, I think Hildervat was the fourth, fourth race I did. Okay. Yeah. And how many races have you won? Four. So all of them. All of them. Yeah. Other than racing Kirk in Vegas, you've had no gimmies either. Like these are, you don't show up to ease. You calling Kirk a gimme? He's he's attempting humor, but he's failing. <laughs> but your nice. races are stacked races too. What, like Jacksonville was the who's who. Hildervat was the who's who. Right. Exactly. So. um so what I want to get at then is this is so Bracken's had this sort of like midlife crisis with his mental tenacity towards exercise and fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in that, like the water's flowing downhill in a good way and momentum feels more momentum and things are really good right now for you, which is great. Um, but, yeah. but what that leads me to is the mental component of all of this. We don't, I don't know if I know much about a glimpse into your brain when it comes to mental approach to racing because you've done so damn well and you do it calm and collected. We've chatted before races and you're, you could be out to lunch and nobody would know the difference, but really you're about to race. Like your demeanor is pretty relaxed. And so I want to dive into that side a little bit, like key to success. It seems like you show up ready mentally as well. You must even in Jacksonville, it didn't look good for you. I'm going to be honest. That first mile and a half, watching it back, didn't look good for you, but yet you won. <laughs> you have to agree with me. You weren't yeah. in the position you wanted to be in. I don't think that's a, you know, I don't think that's a stretch, but you hung in it and you won and then you've won since. And so there's got to be a mental component to it. And I just want to know, how do you sort through that? What's your approach? Are you doing some crazy 
voodoo meditation beforehand? Or are you just cool as a cucumber always? Fill me in. Um, same as my running. When I'm at the front of a race, it doesn't look like I'm trying, but I am. I'm definitely trying, yeah. right? So if I'm really stressed the day before a race, I, I, I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm already stressed. I don't need you like trying to fix me and then making me more stressed. So um, I, I definitely put a lot of pressure on myself, especially the more success that I have, the more I expect myself to continue mm-hmm. that. Um, no one stresses me out more than myself. So I get pretty anxious before races and especially races that I'm supposed to win. Mm-hmm. Which is um, all especially of them with these now. new predictions. Well, th- with the prediction things, uh, with obstacle racing media and that sort of stuff, and then you see that before the race, and they're like, "VJ has eighty-two percent of the votes for this race," and I'm like, "Oh, like, like I'm going to ruin someone's bracket if I fail." It also cheapens your victory, and I don't think that's fair. When eighty-two percent of people say he's supposed to win, when you win, it's like, well, yeah, it's not like. Yeah, I won, but not because everyone thought so. I won because I put the work in and then I hammered people out there. That's my least favorite part of polls is that it cheapens wins. Yeah, it's like the thing that was expected versus someone coming from behind and being a big thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an accomplishment. It's uh, you didn't screw it up. <laughs> yeah, um, but that that was my mentality going into Jacksonville. It's like, dude, like you can win this. Just don't screw up. Mm-hmm. Like this is within your skill set. You saw what happened last year when you made mistakes, you need to have a, a clean race. Mm-hmm. And uh, What was last year's mistake? In 2019, um, I had a few issues. Like uh, I had some bad line choices to the mud. I dropped my sandbag during the, the sandbag carry and like it, dis- it disappeared. I dropped my bag and I couldn't see it. I had to just like reach in and kind of hug and hope that I picked up the bag and I in did. In the muddy water? But it not hmm it was it was it was soup it wasn't water it was like yeah. soup you picked it up and you, I, like it took me a good 15 seconds oh. to get resituated get the bag on my shoulders because it was so slippery to hold it's like covered in baby oil where was your post-race instagram excuse glorifying that vj um well it's it's a part sarcasm of by like, the way i'm yeah. glad you didn't do it <laughs> I would, for the record, that happened to me exactly. I tripped on a root, face planted, sandbag buried, and put it on my Instagram either, back and didn't even tell you about it. Yeah, I like that. We heard everyone's excuse why they didn't win. That's good. Most everyone has uh, excuses after the race and excuses why other people won, like why they were mm-hmm. better. But just this time, I hear it a lot, every race. Um, but... Like I had a few things like that that happened, just time that was given up on obstacles, mistakes that were made as far as racing. And, you know, I didn't finish so far behind Atkins to where I was, you know, completely obliterated. I feel like that race could have been a lot closer because I had to run my ass off after the sandbag to get back into contention. When I fell, I was side by side basically with Kempson and Kempson, I think was in second place behind Atkins. We were right there. Um, and then I had to run myself back into a position where I could catch them. And it, it took a lot. That was like, that was my end of race surge that I had. And I, I turned myself inside out to get back to contention. And just like I was talking about, I have that, that struggle pace that I can sit on that's still competitive, but that's all I got. And I reached that point halfway through the mm-hmm. race. So it was pretty much survival the rest of the race. 
and it was enough to catch Kempson and pass him and hold off Woodsy, but it wasn't an ideal race. And I feel like, you know, I could have done a lot better. So I, I came in with that mindset to this race, knowing that if you do the right things, your fitness will show and you'll be able to, to execute this the correct way. So I, I was able to do that in Jacksonville and it, it came out right. But I knew that um, everyone was talking about like, you know, how VJ is good on flat ground and runnable terrain, but there's not going to be much of that. And I figured like, you know, how far back could I fall on the water? Like I was going to let people go and just when we got out of the water, feel fresh and start putting in work. And then, uh, you know, just, I showed up and, and, and I was like, dang, like he might put enough time on me in this water. If I don't work hard for it, that it, it, it might be too much to make up. So I uh, came in with that mindset, but also knowing that everyone's going to struggle with the tire. That was like my. Do you agree with the narrative that you're not a muddier, wet runner? Because I feel like Seattle, Alabama, you've showed you've shown that you can run slop. Chicago in 2018. Right Chicago. Second. You had the most impressive loss yeah. I've ever seen in Seattle one year. Like you failed, you yeah, failed things I, and outran people by minutes on slop. Where? Why is that narrative existing? I don't know. I, I don't know where it came from or, or anything like that. <laughs> like, um, apparently I'm only good at one thing winning. And that's, that's a, that's a very common <laughs> yeah, winning, <laughs> <laughs> but that's a, that's a very common conversation. People say like, if it's flat, if it's short and if it's good terrain, he can win. And I mean, I can't, I don't disagree with that. Like, yes, if you give me all of those things, you're handing me like many of my strengths. Um, but I think that I've proved myself in some other forms where I'm still competitive in, in different races. Um, but yeah, like I saw it a bunch of times. I went back and watched Hildervat's live feed from Obstacle Racing Media. And there was a lot of stuff being said in that live feed. And things don't really get to me, but a couple of times, like people said, he's a one trick pony and things like that. And I was like, you know what, man? Like I, I, I mean, I've been here a long time, but realistically I haven't been here that long. Like I have a lot of progression, a lot of growth that I can have. And the thing is people in obstacle racing don't understand fitness and everything the way that a lot of runners do. Like a lot of runners put a lot of effort into understanding like what athletes are good at, at least as far as the running world. That's why they have people in MCR just think that, yeah, people do different things. People specialize in different things. And I think one thing that's held OCR back as well is that people don't specialize. People try to be good at everything. And then, wow, you're like kind of good at everything, but you're not fantastic at that one thing that you could really like excel. A, a strange follow-up, but do you feel like the one box you need to check to shut these idiots up is to go win a mountain race? Do you feel like that would squash it? Because that's that's what I feel like people always like to revert back to, right? The mountains. Do you feel like, is that like, even though it's not what you, maybe you're, where your heart is, do you feel like that's like a necessary thing to do to shut those people up or no? The problem is all these mountain races have been long races. It's like they don't go do a sprint in the mountains. They don't go do a super in the mountains. Like they have, but it's rare. Yeah. Like rare, how often do you run a super in the mountains? You don't. It's always a beast. So that's out of my wheelhouse. My main limiter on my fitness and my racing is time. It's duration. It's not that I can't run uphill well. It's that you won't make me run uphill for two and a half hours. Like I can't do that. You can't, I can't run flat for two and a half is, hours. Is that, well. is that a narrative that you want to change or care to change or no? It's a narrative that is based in time. Okay. 
the longer my career goes, the more uh, volume I stack up over the next few years, the better I'll be at it. Like if you, one thing that people miss in volume that they don't think about, like, yes, it builds your aerobic engine and everything like that. But people don't understand like the soft tissue development that you get from running high volume is crazy. And that's why a lot of people go into high volume too quickly and they get hurt. Their, their tissues just can't handle it. And they get connective tissue. When people, that sort of stuff. Exactly. Now, when you slowly build up that volume over a long time, it makes you so much stronger in those longer distances um, in a way that people don't really understand. And I'm in no rush. If I stay healthy, if I train correctly, if I do what I know I can do, I can be competitive for a long time. And I, I, I mean, if I'm 22 now, people peak as far as like longer distance endurance in their like early 30s. So if I do it right and OCR still exists, I could be a very competitive beast world championship level athlete in a few years. But I'm not in a rush to try to force it upon myself. My time's going to come. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt my talent. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in a position where I can race really well at this 5K and 10K distance. And I'm not going to complain about that. I'm going to stick to what is good and I'm going to build and when the time comes that I step onto a beast course and uh, you'll know it, you'll know that when I show up, I intend to win. I'll make it known. Nine years ago, this sport had the exact same conversation about Holy Call. He had won 25 consecutive elite races and it had only lost two races after that point, And they were both world championship beasts. It was, oh, he's a one-trick pony. He went from, he's the greatest we've ever seen, to suddenly Spartan says, our championship's not going to be a super in Texas anymore. It's going to be a three-hour beast in Killington, to suddenly Hobie's overrated. And then he lost again, and he was overrated. And then he won a world championship, and it's like, oh, okay. But then the next year, we went to Tahoe. Oh, now he can't race real long mountains. Killington's so technical. He... And then he won again at 39. But th- we've done this before. People have made the same idiotic accusations nine years ago about Hobie, and he's the greatest we've ever seen. And he came into the sport yeah. at 30, what, four, 35? Maybe a little sooner. He was, he was pretty early. He was, he? but, like real but early. if he won his last championship at 39, he had only been in the sport for yeah. seven years, so maybe 32. Anyways, he was almost 10 years older than you. And they were making the same narratives. Like maybe we could give you a yeah. little bit of time. You would have what? Have you? Would you have graduated college right, right about like two years ago? Um, not right about right now. about now. So Hobie right had now. already. Like this would have been four years ago. Hobie had already been graduated from college, run at the Olympic trials, had four kids, and then they're like, "Yeah, well, you can't run a B." It's like give you a bit of time. Our sport is the only yeah. racing sport that mocks short distance and glorifies long. Yeah. The marathon is not more prestigious than the 100-meter dash. Swimming, in our sport, people have to find reasons to apologize for why some people win. So you are the sink right now. You are the biggest recipient of that unfair narrative. And it's frustrating because, again, I watched it happen with Hobie, who I think we can agree is the greatest to ever do it so far. He's unbelievable the things that he could do it it didn't make any sense and yet you're going and you in your prime right now would match hobie 
in his prime because I've seen both of you and I've raced both of you. Like you're already on that track and yet they're going to repeat the same, <laughs> the same foolish narratives that they repeated that they started nine years ago. And it's really frustrating for, for me to watch the next generation not receiving the benefit of the doubt that the first generation earned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, End of rant. Back it's, a, it's, <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, it's, yeah, it's kind of frustrating, but it, it is what it is at this point. Um, and I don't try to fight it very much. I mean, I try to, to preach what little wisdom that I have to people when we, when we have that conversation, because it comes up a lot. Um, but if you just look at a timeline, just look at a timeline of an endurance athlete, you go from high school, you go to college, you might go a little professional for a little bit. People don't start running marathons, at least not well, until they're 26, 27. Like, when's the last time you saw someone that was 22, like, you know, being a competitive marathoner, unless, you know, there's some phenom. Or African. You know, mm. exactly. And they've just, they've been running 26 miles, like, back and forth from school since they were just, like, seven years old. So I don't rush myself, and I know what I'm capable of, and uh, I'm going to focus on those things for now and just continue my development over the next few years. And I think I can be around for a long time. Um because I'm one of the few people that has gotten to the sport really young. And, uh, and I hope that it continues and progresses in a way that, you know, I can, I can still put the effort in and chase it. I'm uh, I'm yeah. way ahead of myself with this question, VJ. So I'm just going to acknowledge that off the bat. Okay. Yeah. Bracken brought up the, uh, the narrative of Kobe call and the greatest of all time you're really young and you got a lot of time and you're off to a pretty good start. I would say, D don't lie to me here. Is there something in the back of your head that aspires to change that name from Hobie call to VJ Jones a decade down the line? Where does that fall in your psyche? Um, I've said it before um, in like little interviews and things along the way. I've never like been really big in public about it, but ultimate goal is to leave the sport as the best who ever did it. I would, and I feel like the potential's there, but, and again, it's going to be so hard to compare the racing that Hobie Call did versus the racing that I'm doing now. It's different. The field is different. The athletes are different. It's, uh, you know, like comparing different generations of boxers, yep. you know, who is better, Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali? Like, mm -hmm. Like people have debates about that stuff. Who is better, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Like the times are different. The sport is different. I don't know if it's ever going to be fully comparable, but I do want to leave a mark in the sport behind of someone that truly dedicated themselves specifically to OCR, really pursued it. Cause a lot of people do like half OCR and half other things. Like I'm focusing on this sport. This is what I want to be good at. Um, so I feel like there's a lot of potential to to leave a really lasting mark here. And I got a lot of time ahead of me to do it. So I, I can't say that it's not a goal. It definitely is. Yeah. But I'm not going to try to get ahead of myself and try to try to prove too much before it's time. Like, um, do I think that I can win Spartan World Championships this year? Maybe. Uh, is it something that I'm super focused on? No. I'm looking at, you know, OCR Worlds and that 3K. I want, I want John Alvin. I want that boy. I think I think the tough thing about this is is the common follower of the sport. I think bases their decision on who's the man and who's not based off of 
covering the race gamut as far as distance goes. So it's like, as far as the common everyday OCR enthusiasts, it's like, well, VJ hasn't won a beast yet or a major one. And that's like their, you know, that's why we we're just talking about this because really you can't dispute your short course recent dominance. And if you can carry that through, which I have faith you will, that's like kind of the last box to check. And it's good to hear you're not rushing that, but I feel like for the everyday keyboard warrior who's talking smack about you on the internet, who's an idiot and doesn't know anything, that's what like they need to see is like you go win West Virginia. And then they're like, oh, VJ, VJ now, is he going to be the GOAT? Like, but it takes that beast. For some reason, I have a feeling that's what it's going to take. How do you feel about that? Because that doesn't necessarily mean anything, really. We talk about specialists. Are you the you the greatest in the short course well in the last two years history would tell us yes and like, supers he's right he, he's already extended up to 60 65 well, minutes I, I, I'm, I'm including that in short course but i don't know how do you feel about that because that's what i feel like this everyday ocr follower is gonna believe um yeah I, I think once i make that step and start being really competitive in the beast distance that's when people will realize that oh he's he's competitive like he's got a shot being like a, a, a great, I guess, or mm-hmm. something. Um, but yeah, I guess I haven't proven myself across all distances. And I mean, that's fair. It's uh, not, you have VJ. To... <laughs> it's I, not. I don't think it is either. Who are the four greatest distance runners of our time, of modern time? Haile uh, Gebrselassie. Mo Farah. Mo Farah. Yeah. Bekele. Uh, Elliot Kachogi. Did any of them run a marathon prior to thirty? Nope, probably not. Or right on the precipice, no. right, right near. In fact, that time. Mo Farah, Bekele, and Geber Selassie were considered three of the greatest ever before they even moved to the marathon. Mm-hmm. Because in the running world, five k is the end of middle distance and moving into long distance, and ten k is long distance, and half marathon is long road running. So the running world understands that once you get past four minutes, it is not a speed event anymore. The non-running world, which unfortunately OCR is made up primarily of, they do not understand the difference between running fast and a speed event. Mm -hmm. And they say, that's the shortest thing I've ever heard of. That is sprinting. Sure, VJ can sprint. No. 30 minutes is slower than an elite 10K, which is the longest track race in the world. So no, it's not okay. It's a idiotic narrative because if we were in the track world, we would all be running 15K to half marathon based on the time of our events, which would make you a long distance specialist. Mm -hmm. And the four greatest runners of our generation did not take to the marathon until they were past 30 and they were already other than an Eliud, they were already considered three of the goats. So no, I just won't accept this. Don't even try to say <laughs> it's okay that people think that because it's not, it's misinformed. I like Bracken rants. These are nice. He's just broken your <laughs> ego. I like it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I haven't had a, a, a conversation like this where I get pumped up super hard. It's nice. Thanks man. <laughs> But no, I would not put myself on the list of being one of the greatest of all time. At least not yet. Uh, I think I need more history. I think I need more to, to prove myself across championship level events. You know, that sort of thing. Um, and, and, and I'm aware of that. I don't claim to be that. Uh, just so people know. 
I'm not trying to, to be that. I have never been anything super special in the sport, but I have raced everyone who is special in the sport. And so if there's one thing I can, I can very clearly speak to, it's what the top end of the sport has always been. I, st- I ran my first world championships in 2011 and Hobie and Josiah were there. I saw highlights from that. That was a wild race. And I ran my final world championships in 2019, I think. Like I've in between there, I have raced every single person who's ever won a world championship. And not about me, but I've at some point beat all of them. It's not about winning. It's about I've been there late in the race with every good person in the sport, which gives me a bit of a knowledge base to speak from here. Of everyone I've ever raced against, your racing style and mindset are the closest we've seen to Hobie Call. You guys run very similarly, and you race with similar style, similar mechanics in a very different way, if that makes sense. You both have extremely mm-hmm. efficient strides, and your race mentality seems to be pretty similar to. And I think that the top end, we have two types of mentalities, the people who lean into the race and those who sit in it. Like Kempson's a lean into it. He's going to push his forehead forward into the fire as hot as it can go. Killian's a lean into it. He's just going to lean into the pain as hard as he can from the start. Whereas you and Hobie would sit in it. You're willing to weather what anyone wants to throw at you until the moment you decide I'm going to go for it. And you're the only person I've seen that runs like Hobie does. Atkins has flashes of it, but he's still, you never are sure what you're going to get with him. Sometimes he's going to sprint out and and lead the first mile. Sometimes he's going to start Tahoe in 15th place. You don't know, but you of everyone I've raced and I've raced literally everyone in the sport, you are the most similar to him. So in terms of on your path to that status, you're checking some major boxes. Well, thank you, man. I, I appreciate it. It's, it's, it's nice to have some, uh, you're being really nice to him right now. That's right. We'll finish up. This will be a reverse compliment sandwich. <laughs> I'm going to give all the good stuff and then I'm going to finish up with, oh, with ripping thought, him apart. I thought maybe you were looking for some return favors there. I, I want, huh. I want to just dive into your mind just a second. Cause we go on these wonderful tangents about like what you're doing. And I know we're getting somewhat close to time here, but, um, your mind, I still want to dive in. You, we just touched on it and you said, I get nervous and I get anxious and I see, um, polls come out and then I have expectations to meet. Um, I can speak from personal experience that in high school, I was a big fish in a very, very small pond and I won every race until my <laughs> sectional meet before state. And I lost that one by a hundredth of a second, but point being going into every race, it was okay. Kirk's going to win and who's going to take second. And that was probably the most stressful season I've ever had. The one where you're expected to win. And the only thing you can do is disappoint people. And so there's like a weight yeah. that comes with that, that most commoners don't have the luxury of experiencing. Nobody knows what it's like to be the guy with the target on his back because there's only one of them. And so that's like a very tough position to be in. In fact, that's the toughest position. Know whose position is easy to be in? Mine. My position. I show up at a U.S. National Series race, and if I take 10th place, they're like, ah, yeah, somewhere in there. If I take 5th place, they're like, oh, that's fine. Good job for Kirk. But they're never going to scoff or sit at home and talk about me unless I podium where I win. So I just, I got a good, it's only a win-win for me. For you, it's not. I'm being honest. That's true. Us fighting to get to that next group, guys like me, and there's a dozen of us, we got it good. You got it tough. So like, how do you manage that 
I mean, I, you guys don't think I'm wrong there, do you? I'm, you must agree with me on that. So, like, how do you manage that? How do you manage that? And how, when you get in the race and the demons start coming out and you're not sure you're able to do it, you still do it. I had a pretty weak mindset early in my career. Things had to be going right the whole time. If they didn't, then that was it. I kind of let go and, and accepted where I was. Um, and, and I think you could see if you look back at some old races and times where I was, I got beat, um, I would kind of shut down and, and just let it happen and accept. I wouldn't try to fight back. And that was in the longer races to your testament, but yes. Yeah. And I, I mean, but like you look at like 2017, 2018, those years, I was uh, just not as strong mentally as, as I feel like I am now. And one big shift that happened was in 2019. Like, I feel like that was like a, a coming of age for me in the sport almost. Uh, my fitness progressed but my mindset really changed too. I wasn't as easily defeated. And I feel like one of the true showings of that was in Seattle um, where I fell off the Z wall, you know, two miles into the race and had to do 30 burpees. And rather than accept the fact that I might not be able to win this, um, I continued to pursue that race. And, And one thing that really helped huge was, I was kind of like trying to recover from the burpees and running, just like running right behind Johnny. And there's a few people ahead of me and Kent was pulled up, but right beside me. And he said, we have the entire race ahead of us. And just him saying that I looked up ahead rather than just like, you know, getting stuck in this rut of where I was, I looked up ahead and I saw where everyone was. I saw Atkins right there. I saw Kempson right there. And I saw the couple people in between us. And I was like, this is doable the race isn't over. It it was a super, it wasn't a sprint. We had time to work. So I feel like that, that race in itself was a huge shift in mindset of um, not giving up when things go wrong, being able to handle when, when shit hits the fan, basically Um, where I was able to run back and, and give it a run for the win. So I feel like that was a huge part for me and I'm not as easily flustered anymore. I mean, I do put a lot of pressure on myself uh, going into races, but as soon as the race starts, um, I'm not thinking about that sort of thing anymore. It's kind of like everything shifts, but I don't, I don't think I necessarily get easily flustered, especially when other athletes are around. Like you can tell when there's weak minded people, there are some people that you can fluster and you can make them make mistakes in races. And I don't mean to like talk bad on anybody, but Kent's one of those people. You can mess him up before things happen. And I don't think that he knows that. Um, he's very mental. When he's mentally strong, he's a dangerous athlete. And and I think that's one of the things that's kind of, uh, you know, haunted him a little bit. His, mentally, I think it, it messes with him because he's an incredible athlete. And he's had some super strong performances. And usually his strong performances are decided before he even gets there. Right. He's super strong in in Seattle because he mentally knows that he can be strong there and he's strong in West Virginia. But all those races in between, like what happened? Like you have the fitness to perform, but his mental state, I think he gets flustered a little bit. And I've done it to him. I've done it to him in races where like I I press him or I'll sit right behind him or something and wait for him to, you know, make a little mistake or something. I've done it to Killian. I've done it to a bunch of people. Um, Killian's harder though. Killian's a hard one to mess with. He's pretty bulletproof. But a lot of people have those 
the kind of things where certain things will fluster them, especially if they're weak. And I, I've, I feel like I've gotten strong enough to where I'm not as intimidated by other athletes as I used to be. Cause it used to be like, I'm here racing against like my heroes and I accept that I'm not as good as them and I'll take my opportunities to be near them when I can versus I have the potential to beat these guys and I'm just as competitive as the rest. But, but let's talk about like Jacksonville specifically for a second. Cause you got to the tire still not in the lead or you, I don't believe you were in the lead. No, I, I took the lead once we hit the gauntlet of obstacles, which was my plan. So just before the tire, then you kind of took the lead in that, in that section. But yeah. um, like the narrative in your head then when it's not yet in your control, and I don't think you knew you had the race locked up quite yet. What are you telling yourself then where you're not quite sure yet where you're falling in, in the line of guys? Well, I knew that going into that race, I did a lot of obstacle work as well. Same as Hilderbach. Um, my strength was going to be in transition of obstacles. And I knew that my skill set was there. I was going to be the most efficient and fluid through the obstacles. I had the potential to be the fastest through that area. So I was waiting for my opportunity because there were no obstacles in the first mile and a half, two miles of that race. We had a bucket carry and I capitalized on the bucket carry as well. I waited for those opportunities, but um, seeing the pace that was being run, I knew that that wasn't going to be necessarily where I want it, especially after working as hard as I did through the mud and water, which kind of taxed me. So still being close though, being in touch, that was like basically my plan. I knew Kempson was going to go out hard and I knew he had a lot of experience in sloppy conditions, you know, coming from Vermont and that, that area. So I figured that he would try to press the pace there and, and, ahead. I didn't expect to be in first coming out of that area. Um, I didn't expect to be quite as far back as I was, but I was still within striking distance. But as soon as we hit that gauntlet of obstacles, um, as soon as we got out of the water, inverted wall and Atlas stone, I made up the ground on Josiah. I was right behind him. Then he sprinted off. Fine. We're going to hit some more obstacles. I'm going to make up the ground. I ended up passing him by the spear throw, um, was able to put a little time on those guys on the sled pull through the rig, that sort of thing. I was comfortably, um, you know, five to eight seconds ahead at that point, And I felt good. Um, and I knew the tire was going to be a problem for people. And, uh, there's this story that's going around that I had a shovel with me <laughs> that I didn't, I didn't have a shovel. I didn't bring a shovel to Jacksonville. That's a good, that's a good like, story. Steve, Steve, Steve Hammond keeps telling people, yeah, he had a little trowel with him and he dug under the tire. I'm like, dude, no, I did not do that. So I had a. Is he doing that to be funny or is he being serious? I don't know, dude, but it's been said many times. Uh, a couple of people have asked if I had a shovel with me. I'm like, no, watch the video. I heard tiny little pieces of, of dynamite and you did some depth charges. Yeah, that was my actual real strategy. Yeah. They're about the size of a lip balm, and I ran a little thing, and I compressed it on the side. I was told you went out there in the middle of the night the night before, and you dug little holes on the perfect spots for the tire clip <laughs> on that end tire. Is that not true? No, not quite. Um, what yeah. else have you heard, Brad? Anything else? <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. It's it's be taken on a life of its own. The fact of the matter is, is that no self-respecting man in that field can make an excuse for VJ because most of them would 
or not not most, almost all of them have had some sort of Instagram post bragging about their lifting in the gym. Like you can't have it both ways. You can't <laughs> brag about your deadlift and then also complain when VJ flips the tire and you can't. You, you can't have it both. I heard helium balloons on the inside lining of the tire. I heard them all. Continue. That's Just awesome. kidding. I've heard none of those, but I like to think that. <laughs> but I, I want to interject in that the VJI... I've, I've seen, I saw him at Warrior Dash when he was 16 or 17 and he was super aggressive. But once he got past, you know, he was, I think he got out a little hot, but you never know. But then I met, met him in Seattle when we had the first big pro team gathering and you were, you had a bit of that. I'm happy to be here. And you could tell you were excited to see people and try to race with them. But you also openly said like, yeah, a couple of years from now, but this is too long right now. You've always been verbal with that, but at the start line, you had your eyes were more wide and you had a little bit of a grin. And then eventually I didn't see you for a while as I was out of the sport for a little bit. And I saw you in Alabama and you had this aura of cockiness at the line. You didn't even have to do anything, not arrogance, cockiness. <laughs> and I believe cockiness is a desirable athletic trait. Arrogance is not a desirable human trait. Confidence would be another way to say it. I think there's a line. Cody Moat was confident. Hobie was cocky. That's fair. There's, That's there's fair. confidence, there's cockiness, and then there's arrogance. And arrogance is is too much, but cockiness is what the best have to have. And and you walked up, and your stride, your posture, and your facial expression said, you have that. And it was a different sense of of everything than what I had seen from that kid in Seattle. But that kid in Seattle when Josiah pulled away through the slop and Kempson was running hard or when you caught them over an inverted wall or whatever, and then they, and then Josiah re-raised with a surge out, you wouldn't have thought, all right, cool. I see what's happening here. I'm going to get you on the next stage. You would have thought, well, there goes my race. He's faster than me. So even though you can calmly dissect it, the fact that you're calmly dissecting it in a race means you're not at the same place mentally than what you used to be. Yeah. I'd say there's been some good progression. Um, Was that intentional? Or is that just learned throughout the years of growing up on the course and hitting some fitness metrics prior? I think it, it came from, you know, knowing that I could be competitive one day and, and just kind of slowly inching my way closer to the top athletes. Um, a lot of people don't have that opportunity to race at like a professional level in their sport from an early age and know that they can catch them eventually. A lot of people, you know, when they get to the pro scene, that's their time. They have to perform right then. Um, I had this this potential road laid out in front of me where I could pursue it. So um, slowly inching my way closer and getting familiar with these guys and, you know, getting my chance to be competitive over time, I think it just kind of played, uh, played into that. And, you know, in Seattle, uh, Bracken yelled coaching advice to me while we were racing. My shoe came untied in the first like mile and he said, don't bother with, with loops, just tie knots and go. And I was like, that's really smart. And I did that. And I remembered that I never untied a shoe was that because it like scarred me 2017. Yep. And um, yeah, there's been a few times like that in mid race coaching advice, you know, or, or even like when you showed up to races, like after that, I get all, I get like advice throughout the, the, the race and it's like all these like little nuggets of wisdom along the I'm way not, it's it's I'm not cool 
advice. Like I'm keeping it. that to myself. Never again. You know why? Because in Indiana in 2013, I had a shoe I'd never tried. And when the laces got wet, they compacted and my shoe came off twice. And on the second one, I'm like, why am I tying my shoe? So I'd done the exact same thing in a sloppy mud pit, what, four years earlier. Well, I appreciate it. It definitely saved me a few Keep seconds. Keep that shoe loose. It's just going to happen again, VJ. That's what I tell you. <laughs> Don't waste your time, but. <laughs> just leave it untied, yeah, man. Just running with one shoe on is definitely a success. <laughs> um, all right. Almost two hours. We all probably have to pee. At least I do. <laughs> That's how this works. I, I just want to ask one last thing. And the last time we chatted was a while ago. We had uncertainty with the season and the schedule and all of that. Yeah. Now we have what we think is more of a clear picture, but I'm sure it'll change multiple times. What are you doing this year? What are we now looking for? You said you're not going to Utah. I approve. Are you going to Asheville? Yep. You going to West Virginia? Are you just doing OCR uh, world? Like what are we focusing on? Um, well, the main focus is OCR worlds. Everything else is just, uh, you know, stepping stones on the way. So uh, in preparation for OCR worlds, I'm going to Indian mud run uh, at the end of this mm-hmm. month because I've heard it's a really close uh, race comparatively to OCR Worlds, and it's something that I've always wanted to do. It's always looked like a really cool event, and I want to take my opportunities to do some of these uh, smaller events in the country, like you know Conquer the Gauntlet and things like that, because they've always interested me, and now I have the opportunity to do it. So I'm going to do it. Um, looking. Mm-hmm. That's one of the big yeah, and it's one of the biggest small races, if there, if that's an oxymoron. I, I don't know what is, but it's one of the biggest small races out there. In- yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and it looks like a ton of fun. Um, looks like we got some hard obstacles, so I'm really excited for it. Um, looking at the U.S. National Series, I didn't know how competitive I was going to be as far as what events were lined up. But now that we're solid on on where we're going, I think I got a pretty good shot especially with taking the top three of five scores. So I'm going to do all of the rest of the series. I'll be in Asheville. I'll be in Big Bear. I'll be in West Virginia, but I'm not doing Utah. Um, It's just way too long of a race as far as how much elevation gain there is and it being a beast. If it was a super, I'd probably still show up, which is why I'm going to still show up to the super in Big Bear because, um, it's climbing, but it's still not a super long duration race as far as time. So I'll be there in West Virginia. I think I have a decent shot at, I, I made some mistakes last time and didn't feel right. So hopefully I can solve those problems and, and have a better showing there, but everything's on the way to OCR worlds. I'm focusing on the three K, but I want to carry enough volume into that race where I can still have a, a decent competitive shot at the 15 K of, you know, uh, having a good showing there, but Main focus is the 3K. Um, I'm, I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. And what about after OCR Worlds? Are you still long-term? Like if Abu Dhabi happens, there wouldn't be a question you'd go, I assume? Or is that still something where you're not sure? It depends on how much it costs, honestly. It looks to be an expensive trip. And I'm like, since I'm full OCR, it's not a huge budget for your boy. So I know what you made this year. It's $9,000 on the head, according to OCR report. Dude, I'm riding that poverty line. I'm doing really good. I'm not racing anyways. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it depends on how much it costs, but I'd love to go just for the experience as much as the race. But I, I don't know what it's going to look like. It might, from what I've heard, we're going to climb some sand dunes, but we're also going to have a lot of good running. So, uh, 
I'm interested to see what we put together or what they put together and, and what we get to do. But I'd like to go to that. And uh, if international travel opens up, there might be a couple other races on the schedule that I might toss in um, some European stuff that I've really had my eye on. But we'll, we'll see. It's uh, it's about how I can train for it. But luckily, there's enough time and preparation from after OCR Worlds to when Abu Dhabi is. You can have a good two-month mm-hmm. block of, of longer running training. Um, but, yeah, we'll see. I, I want one of those running public T-shirts. Sony, you can just go buy one, VJ. Well, I, I still haven't looked at the website yet, so <laughs> i got to go check it out. You know, I was looking for a link underneath, like, the YouTube video, but there's no YouTube video, so... Kind of I spent 27 months building that website. You got to check it out. About 27 months. You put five minute blocks at a time into it. That's how, that's False. That's how it takes so long. Bracken, you got anything else for our, our man, VJ? Always. I mean, I could talk with VJ for hours because I love his mindset on training. He's He grew up doing this. And so he wasn't exposed to college running, but he also wasn't tainted by it. And so he has a slightly different take in a very good way to everything. And every time we chat, I walk away with notes in my notebook of things to look into. So just thank you. That I mean, today, mechanical threshold alone was worth sitting down with you. I'm glad I could help. I, I, I always listen to a uh... I listen to, I'd say, 80% of your guys' podcasts. Some slip through the cracks because I forget that podcasts exist, and then I go like a few weeks without listening to any. Um, but I remember that you always commented that Hunter has these little little uh, nuggets of knowledge that drop yeah. every once in a while that are very entertaining. Uh, I aspire to be like that one day. I want to have a conversation, and you walk away with something, and you're like, that was really nice. You did it today. I'm going to remember that. I agree. Check that off the list. Success. Can, I did it. Right off into the sunset. Way to go, BJ. Yeah, man. Thanks, man. I'm leveling up here. And you really just got pat on the back and your ego stroked by Bracken for at least half of this thing. So like, you got to get out and ride high. I don't know what this is. I hope there's no negative feedback from that. Like, like there's bias. Bracken's never been that. I didn't, know that Bra- I didn't know that I had such a big fan in Bracken. Like, that's, that's really cool. I didn't come in here with that intent. I generally don't just sit here and just stroke <laughs> our guests. But, man, my arm's sore today. <laughs> i'm gonna send you a vj jones t-shirt just for you man you wear it in all your fast workouts all right and i'll send you a running public extra medium okay Bracken, i expect the uh, favor to be returned on this uh complimentary situation in our next training tuesday oh i'm gonna butter you up mm. oh i love the training tuesday intro by the way i was running on the treadmill and i actually went tuesday 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 that's all we need to hear that's going to be our new tagline vj jones whispers tuesdays (laughs) yeah man thanks for your time all right see you guys